Peace be with you. Today's scripture reading is Matthew 3, 1 through 12. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in your bulletin or on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Sojourn Midtown. All right, let's try that again. It's a little chilly in here, so thank you for bearing with us. Keep the coat on, but let's be fired up. Good morning, Sojourn Midtown. Oh, that's fantastic, guys. Well, hey, my name's Justin Carl. I'm the pastor of Next Steps here, and I'm delighted to preach this passage as we continue in the Matthew series. We have a historic event in the history of the world today. But first, I want to explore... I want to explore a phenomenon in our culture. And the phenomenon is this. We love the wild. Specifically, we love the wilderness. It has launched at least a dozen shows in the past 10 to 20 years. Take a look with me. We got wild Alaska or wild Russia, these fierce animals living in the Arctic. Then we got Bear Grylls, man versus wild. We had to find someone in Britain to come tell us how to survive scenarios we will never live. We had to find them. We had to go get them. And then this one. I found out this show's still on. 20-some years later, they are still doing whatever that show does. And it goes deeper than that. I mean, we, we can think about the novels we had to read in school, right? Remember this one? We got White Fang by Jack London. Some of you are like, no, I don't like reading. Some of you are like, I read the Cliff Notes. Or this one, The Hatchet. Read The Hatchet. I remember we read it near Christmas. I was like, Mom, I need a hatchet. And she's like, we live in suburban Virginia. No, you do not. I was like, well, what if I get stranded in a plane? And she's like, stop, stop. But we love these scenarios and we love these things because we kind of wonder, what's it really like out there? What's the wilderness really like? And today, I think we love it more than ever because we've had these inventions of cameras and phones so we can take pictures of where we are and share it immediately or brag about it. So you can get a shot like this. This is the Smoky Mountains. Who knew? You can go visit the summer, not that far away. And then it kind of looks like this when you're out there. Grab it, you know, millennials doing millennial things. Big boots, taking shots of everything. But the thing is, this is not just a phenomenon 
Uh, it, it literally is statistically provable. We are at an all-time high of visiting national parks, an all-time high. Instagram is literally driving revenues, so congrats, Instagram. So here's the thing. It brings us back to a why of why do we crave wild places and the stories that go with them. And I think it's because we all know there's something more to this life. And being out there a little outside of the city or outside of civilization makes you feel a little closer to that danger and the beauty, the unpredictability, the unchangingness of mountains, yet the ever-changing landscape with the seasons. And it all helps us kind of grasp and try to hold on to what is truth about life and existence and God and ourselves. And in a way, being alone there, we feel a little closer to all those truths. And that's where this story starts. It starts in the wilderness with all of those things coming to bear. Look at verse one with me. It says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And in the wilderness of Judea was a scrub desert out by the Jordan River. Few people could live there. Few people could survive there. But we got this man, John the Baptist, out there preaching. And in all four Gospels, they all mention that this happens in the wilderness because that's a tip-off to Jewish readers who know their Old Testament saying, oh, the wilderness, that's where these sorts of things happen. And those sorts of things are this. The wilderness is where you receive revelation from God. When you think back on Israel's story, they leave Egypt and they go to Mount Sinai in the wilderness and they get the Ten Commandments and the law from the fire from God himself. But it's also a place of God's formation of his people. Out in the wilderness, people learn to depend on God. They heed his discipline. They follow his leadership, just like Israel followed their God all the way from Egypt to the promised land. But in addition to be revelation and formation, it's also a place of God's judgment because Israel would arrive at the promised land, then reject God's provision and be sentenced to wander the wilderness for 40 straight years until an entire generation of leaders had died out. And so the question is, well, well, what's this wilderness mean? And it's all of it. And it's all happening right now. And as we look at at John the Baptist calling in verse three and four, it helps shed light on what is this man in the wilderness preaching about? Why is he doing this? For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. See, John's calling was to prepare the way of God. Prepare for the visitation of God himself to earth. And back in these old empires, whenever the king was coming to visit, they would hurry and prepare all the roads. They'd make all the repairs. They'd get the potholes straightened out. They'd put up the signs. They'd beautify everything because the king was coming. So that's what it's referring to. It's much like how we decorate Bardstown Road for that first weekend in May. And by derby time, we have the greatest city in the history of the world for a couple miles in and around Churchill Downs and Bardstown. It's a similar feel. They're preparing for something big. And the big thing is that God is coming. 
And this isn't a, uh, a sudden calling for John the Baptist. Actually, he's been called to this work from birth. We don't get it in the Gospel of Matthew, but in the Gospel of Luke tells us a story about John the Baptist's mother and father. His father was a priest named Zechariah. His mother was named Elizabeth. And they were very old, it tells us. I don't know how old very old is, but it put a very in front of old. So it's probably pretty old. And it said they were childless. And one day when Zechariah was in the temple, an angel appeared before him and says, y'all are going to have a child. You're going to name him John. And he's going to do three really specific things. This is what this boy will be called to as a man. One, he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even before birth. In the womb, he'll be filled with the Spirit of God. So much so that when Elizabeth meets her cousin Mary, that she will, John the Baptist will recognize Jesus is in the other womb and start leaping and dancing for joy in her womb. Two, this John will do the ministry of Elijah. He will be a new or a second Elijah, someone who had a powerful prophetic ministry of miracles and calling in Israel. He will be a new one. And this is a direct reference to Malachi 4, which is the last prophecy of the Old Testament that said one will come as a second or new Elijah to prepare the way of the Lord, to bring repentance to the people. And that's the third thing. John the Baptist will prepare the way of the Lord by bringing repentance to people. And John the Baptist's calling moved him quickly out of the high society of the temple and out into the sober life of stillness in the wilderness. The text clues us in that he didn't like head out to the wilderness to start his ministry. He's been out in the wilderness. He's been living out there. Take a look at verse four with me again. It says, now John wore a garment of camel's hair, which was scratchy and no one wants to wear, and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And to some of y'all, essentially eating grasshoppers sounds gross. But for others of y'all, this is the dream. Organic, super local, super fresh, non-GMO, totally raw. This is the dream. His skin probably looks amazing. In pictures, he always looks like a burly guy because he's bringing repentance, but he's probably looking shredded hanging out in the wilderness in the middle of a river, okay? It is not an easy life living more or less a hermitage out for a dozen years in the wild. That's the John the Baptist. And when he's described like this, just a man of the wilderness, this is what a man of the wilderness would eat. This is what he'd wear. It sounds exactly like Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 1. He's described the same way in his outfit. And for any Jewish reader paying attention, they're like, oh, okay, this is the second Elijah. No mistaking. There's no one else like him. This is the guy. And that means God is coming. John the Baptist is a sign that God is coming to deliver his people. The new exodus is here. And this is not just a wild place. It's not just a wild calling, but this is a wild moment in the history of Israel. Like I mentioned earlier, this is a, a world-stopping moment in the history of the world even. And because look at verse 5. This is what was happening. It said, then Jerusalem, so a whole city, and all of Judea, a whole country, and all of the region, so the surrounding countries, came about the Jordan and were going out to them. And the Jordan's a river. And so we usually have this picture in our mind of like 20 people hanging out on the riverbank, evaluating John's message and being like, I'll get baptized. And they calmly go, okay, I'll fill out my card and go get baptized. And that was not happening at all. 
This is much more like thousands or even tens of thousands of people from every direction heading and trekking out to the wilderness. No GPS, following the Jordan River until I found the man who's the prophet of God. It's been 400 years since there's been a prophet. And now God is speaking through John the Baptist and readying a people. It probably feels, since these people aren't eating locusts and honey, and these people have children and all sorts, they are camping out there. It feels much more like a music festival than a community group with a river, all right? And think like Woodstock, original, not fire festival, okay? That is what's happening out there. There is a moment happening in redemptive history. There's a moment happening for all of Israel. It's all anyone is probably talking about is he's the most famous guy who's not a king. And the question becomes, how is John the Baptist making the Lord's path straight? What's his message causing all of this? And we're going to kind of hit the what, the why, and the how of this message. Look at verse two with me. It says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The quick summary and the full summary of John's message is repent. It is a stark command. It is saying repent now. Don't think about it. Don't just consider it. Don't put it as a podcast for your next long drive. Don't, uh, don't sit and analyze and overanalyze the situation. He's saying repent right now without hesitation or mental evasion. He wants all of you to repent. And this isn't unique for the prophets of God. There's plenty of prophets of short to the point messages, and his may be the shortest of short. Repent as a command. And repentance speaks both here to changing our mind and turning for sin. I love Jared Kennedy's children's Bible because it says, turn around. And we talk about that with my kids. We got to turn around. Sweetie, this isn't going well. Turn around. And sometimes when I'm doing stupid, I got to turn around, you know, and stop doing dumb. And here's the thing. Because sin is anything we do that doesn't love God and doesn't love our neighbor. To love God is to obey God. To love a neighbor is to love them like God loves them. And anytime we fall short of those things or do them for the wrong reasons even, we are in sin. And so here's a biblical way to think about repentance. Because it's more than saying we're sorry. It's more than having regret. It's, it's part of those things. But here's kind of a biblical framework for you to think through. And it's head, it's heart, and it's hand. And it starts with the head. To repent is to agree with God that your ways are right, God, and my ways are wrong. So I'll change my mind. Two, it sinks to the heart where it says, I repent because I see my sin is against God himself and I turn from my sin, not just to stop doing it, but I turn from my sin and turn all the way to God and ask for his forgiveness and grace to transform and work in my heart. It's not enough just to stop doing what you're doing and say sorry. We must turn around and turn to a Jesus who's eager to embrace us. It's not just moral improvement, but asking for forgiveness that God willingly, happily gives in Jesus and bathing in that grace to change our dark hearts towards God. Because sins always go deeper than our words and actions. Jesus will drop this in Matthew 12, verse 34, and says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? 
For out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. It's never like, ah, I just shouldn't have said that. Ah, I I shouldn't have done that. It comes from somewhere deeper. We need a heart change. We need a heart surgery. And it sounds like this. It's not, I'll try better next time, God. It's, I surrender all to you, Jesus. On this whole topic, this whole situation, I lay it at Lord Jesus' feet. Transform me, God. And then it moves to our hands because something physically has to change with repentance, if it's biblical repentance. It says to repent is to change our hands, our actions, our patterns, the, ways, the way we work in this world. That means we apologize, we make restitution, we, we talk with people about the pain we've caused them. It is a full head to heart to hands change. And John assumes that we all have sin to repent of because we do. The second part of, of his opening phrase really shows us why we all have sin to repent of. Look at verse two. It says, repent, the summary, for why the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the tone here is apocalyptic. Excuse me. <laughs> See, God's coming means two things. God's coming means two things. It means absolute thrilling joy for all who repent because salvation is here. And it means doom for everyone who refuses to repent because damnation is near. See, God's presence, that kingdom of heaven in which the king himself is coming, literally in the verse after this passage, God's presence exposes us. When we encounter God and his word, we see God is not like us. He is holy. He is other. He is kinder, loving, more perfect, more gentle than we will ever be. And we are not those things, at least not in the abundance and perfection and goodness that God is. So this is our sin. This is that gap between who God is and who we are. That is our great need for Christ. And the more we reflect on who God is, the more the kingdom of God comes near. That gap grows ever deeper as we start to see ourselves rightly of how it really is and see God for who he really is. And that gap gets bigger and bigger and that need feels bigger and bigger. And it's actually always been there. It's just when we encounter God, we become aware of it all that, man, I'm not God. I'm a guy who needs God. And this isn't going to make you right with God. Repenting and for the kingdom of God is at hand isn't going to make you right with God, but it will get you ready to meet him. That's the message of John the Baptist. He is making the path straight by getting people's hearts ready to meet and see Jesus for who he is. You are ripe to encounter God when you see you have a great need for God. If you want to miss God, ignore or numb yourself to your need for God. That is a recipe for disaster. And John says, man, the kingdom of God is here. Repent. Feel your need. And verse 6 gives us a how. It says, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. He's saying, if that's you, if you see your need and you repent, then take an outward sign of it. The, the water isn't, isn't magical, but it's a sign to all that says, I need Jesus. I need the coming king. 
I need the one who is to come. And they confess their sins, specific sins. And this is interesting in the text because the narrative is about to break. We have this big overview of everything. I mean, we're talking dozens of years of John's life summed up into what's happening right now. And then in verse 7, the religious elites show up. And we get a little more of John's message unpacked for us. In verse 7, the religious elites are these Pharisees and Sadducees. Take a look in verse 7 with me. It says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And now we see that John the Baptist isn't just in a wild place, but he's a wild guy himself. He is 0% scared of any man because he fears God alone. And he drops this phrase, you brood of vipers, you offspring of vipers. And in that day, that was a common insult to say to someone. It was a dark insult to say to someone. It is calling them out because there was a, a popular author at the time that had reported this myth that Arabian vipers burst out of their mother's room by eating their way out. So to call someone an offspring or a brood of vipers is to say, you're the sort of person who might kill your own mother. You Pharisees and Sadducees are the sorts of murderous people that would kill your own family members. And the thing is, John's not wrong. Because while these were religious folks, these are very definitely of the same sort or maybe even the same people that will vote yes to kill Jesus. And so he addresses them as these brood of vipers, these people. And why is he so offended by them? It's because they're not here to listen to John. They're not here to respond to God. They're not here to be baptized. They're here for the spectacle of it all. And they're getting way more than they bargained for because this isn't just a spectacle. They're substance. God is actually moving. God is laying a pathway for his son through John. And you get this, this calling and you see that religious people are people who do things for God, but do not need God. Thus, they never experience his love, nor love God truly. Religious people are people who do things for God, but do not need God. Thus, they never experience God's love and forgiveness, nor do they truly love God at all. They miss both the holiness of God and their sinfulness, and therefore they ignore their need. And the heart of repentance is that, that you recognize your need for God and you turn to him. Without that, you simply do not know God. To ignore our need, to be numb to our need is to not know God at all. And so God, John calls them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He says to drop your religiousness, drop comparing yourself to others all the time, drop thinking you're better than anyone else and stop looking around at everyone and look up to God, feel your need and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And the direct application for us is to say, how's that going? How's your repenting going? Do you see fruit from it? Are you regularly going to people to say you're sorry? Because it's not that we're uh, living these perfectly loving lives. It's just, are we aware when we need to say sorry? 
Are we regularly apologizing to others? Are we regularly going to God and having real sins to confess, just like these people there, specific and real? Do we go to our friends and say, help me with these things? That's that wonderful fruit. We usually think the fruit of our lives is these good things we do, but man, there's a bearing fruit that comes from repentance and saying, I'm a needy person and I got a God who wants to meet my needs. That's the beauty of repentance is that fruit comes right out of it. Repentance isn't just a cycle of feeling bad. It's becoming a new person who enjoys God more than ever. And John the Baptist goes on in verse 9 and 10. He hasn't finished his address to these religious folks. And he says, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John the Baptist anticipates their main argument, which would go something like this. I don't need this baptism, John. That's what Gentiles do as a part of their conversion to be Jewish like me. They believed that because they were Jewish, these descendants of Abraham, that they had no need of a repentance like this. They had an idea of repentance, but not like this on a mass total scale that John the Baptist is preaching that the kingdom of God is near. And John the Baptist puts them on notice that this repentance he's preaching is a reckoning of God himself, that God is a great woodsman and he is carrying his ax and swinging it low and ready to cut down at the roots any tree that does not bear fruit in keeping with repentance. To trust in your religious background, to trust in your parents' background, to trust in your ethnic background, instead of trusting in God and repenting and turning to him, is foolishness. There is only one way to be, and the way is to repent and believe in Jesus. And this intense verse leads us into John's message about Jesus. Look with me at verse 11. He's going to give us two big verses about the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first is this. I baptize you with water for repentance. John does. And he, Jesus, who is coming after me, is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John the Baptist can get you ready to meet God. He has a baptism of water, an outward sign of repentance. And in their culture, the lowest, most lowly servant of a household was tasked to carry the master's sandals. And he's saying, hey, I'm that guy, and maybe I'm even lower than that guy when you compare me to Jesus. I'm the sign, and Jesus is the show. And this is why, because where John Baptist can get you ready to meet and see God, it's only Jesus that can make you right with God. John the Baptist, you can remember, get you ready. But Jesus Christ is the only one that makes people right with God. Because Jesus brings a baptism of the Holy Spirit, which describes God coming into your life and into your heart and making you new. And now Christians, we do a water baptism. We do them, I don't know, every eight weeks right over here. We do a water baptism, but it's after we repent and believe. 
just as Jesus will be baptized in the next passage. And the early church will practice it throughout the New Testament. But we do a water baptism now because Jesus has given us a baptism of the Holy Spirit. See, when we repent and believe in Jesus, the Spirit of God is sent into our life and into our heart, and he starts to live and change us from the inside out. That's that baptism he's describing. And this is the good news that salvation is here, that Jesus can take anything you've done, any, any experience you've had, and he can send his Holy Spirit to save you and change you and bring you from that and start a healing to renew you and make you new in life. It's great truth that our wicked hearts won't win, that God's not just saying, hey, I solved the math problem of your sin. He's saying, I'm solving the heart problem. I'm making you new to want to repent and want to find joy in God himself, that Jesus can conquer and enter our wilderness. But this verse also mentions that Jesus baptizes with fire. And John will illuminate even further in verse 12. Look with me. Jesus' winnowing fork is in his hand. And Jesus will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. Jesus' coming means salvation is here and damnation is near. In this time period, people would bring their grain to these threshing floors, these kind of open airish warehouses uh, where they had a process of taking a winnowing fork, which we don't use much anymore, but kind of like a rake, and they'd toss the wheat up into the air. And whether the wind was blowing or they had to make an artificial wind with like a big fan, it would blow the chaff off the top. And the chaff was anything they harvested by mistake or, or kind of the husk of the kernels of the wheat. And it would get caught in the air because it's light and it kind of blow down the building of the warehouse and amass in piles at the back of the building as it floated down only to be burned for it had no use. And then all the wheat, the kernels themselves would fall and kind of bounce to the floor and eventually amass piles of all the good harvest. This was literally the life source of these people. They, they would either eat it or sell it. It was how they made their money in this rural wilderness of Judea and most of Palestine and all these agrarian communities. And I want to be infinitely clear that Jesus is the one with a winnowing fork. And he's tossing grain into the air, separating out the wheat and the chaff of all the people of this world. To refuse Jesus and God's gracious offer to repent and believe in him, to turn around and to turn to Jesus, is to choose to become chaff one day. To be blown away to an unquenchable fire at the judgment. And yes, that unquenchable fire refers to a very real hell for all the chaff, for all those who do not repent. As John 3 makes clear that Jesus came to save the world, but it is also true that Jesus came to judge it one day, all of it. He shall winnow the world. Even now as people are rejecting or accepting the gospel, the gospel has begun its winnowing work throughout all of the world. And our culture prefers a message of blessing and how to live better advice with enough entertainment sprinkled on top to keep people engaged. And if I were to skip these passages, but if I were to ignore them, I want to be clear, I'd be refusing to love you. 
If I were to try to explain these things away and say it's actually this and this and this, I would be ignoring the obvious truths that God made clear from verse 10 and 11 and 12 here. It would make me a fraud of a pastor and not your friend. It would make this church and unfaithful church, untrustworthy. We are called to divide the word of truth, interpret God's word faithfully and truthfully per 2 Timothy 2.15. That is the call to the church to be this pillar of truth and righteousness and life that can guide you into eternal life and teach you from the scriptures of God that we shall not ignore difficult things, but rather teach them clearly and trust in the wisdom and goodness of our God. We love you too much to lie to you. We shall not pretend that the stakes are not deathly and drastically high. If sin has no consequence, if sin has not brought spiritual death, if sin will not mean we spend eternity apart from God, then Christ died for no reason. To save us from nothing, to take no punishment, the cross has no power if sin has no consequences. To remove sin, to remove hell, to remove judgment from the Bible or the gospel is A, to divorce ourselves from reality and to live in a myth, and two, to depart from the gospel altogether. The winnowing fork of Jesus is not a myth like the brood of vipers. This is as real as we are today and maybe even more so. It is the ultimate reality, God himself. Neither John nor Jesus nor am I trying to scare you into the faith, but I want you to soberly hear from God and hear from his word the truth about what is actually at stake. But amidst all the sobriety of facts lies the greatest news of all, that Jesus entered the wilderness of this world. See, I love the metaphor of the wilderness because it's as fascinated as we are by some wilderness out there and we love to take pictures of it. I think our real fascination lies within ourselves that we know that there's a wild heart of ourselves that feels we want it to be tame, but it's untamable in a way. We want to have a master, but we don't want to be owned or owed anything to anyone. We have eternity in our heart, but it's warped and wrapped by sin. So we have these desires for good things, but they come out wrong and they're, they're a mess kind of all the time. I want to be loved, but I can't trust anyone. I'm searching for beauty, but denying my fellow man at every turn and, and devaluing him. I'm striving to build a life of meaning, but I realize I end up being more of a wrecking ball to about half of the things in my life. We find ourselves as self-destructive creatures dreaming for glory. That's our wilderness. That's our need. When you're like, what's need feel like? That's the need. That's what it feels like. That's why we walk around at the Louisville Zoo and you look at those big cats and those bears and you think how wild and powerful they are and you're thinking, what is that inside me that connects with this and feels like I'm not really in control of my own life in a way. There's a wonder, there's a fear. And the good news is this, that Jesus doesn't just address our wilderness on a chalkboard or even give us a path out of the woods. No, Jesus came to the wilderness of this world for us. 
Jesus became the great woodsman and he cuts down the trees of a religious people that deny him, but he hangs on a tree for all who will admit their need for Jesus. He's in the woods with you even now, no matter what it is. And he has paid the price for the wildness of our soul to tame us and to bring us close to him that we would be the children of God. And we can turn to him and live in all of our sin and all of our struggle and all of the sins against us and all of our shame that Jesus took the fire for us. So today I beg you, feel the distance between God's holiness and our actualness and who we are and take that and turn and repent to Jesus and accept his graciousness. For Jesus came for us. So turn away from everything else and turn to Jesus. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and a cup of wine. And the bread, he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you as it would be on the cross. And likewise, he took a cup of wine and said, this is the cup of the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. This is my blood. And he says, as often as you gather to remember back to that night, to remember back to this cross and resurrection, and also to dream forward of the return of the king, one day when our hearts will no longer be wild at all, we are to take communion. We have communion in the front half of the room, in the front for the front half of the room, for the back for the back half of the room. Gluten-free communion, alcohol-free communion is to my left and your right in the corner. This meal is only for those who have repented and believed upon Christ, have turned from sin and continue to turn from sin in their daily walk with Christ and turn to a living Christ who loves us and died for us. If that's not you today, I ask that you stay seated. I'm so glad you're here and consider the truths of this gospel. Let me pray.